This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. So this morning, we're going to be kind of be wrapping up a sermon series we've been in for the month of October uh, that we've called here Generous, uh, and really with a focus on what it means for God's generosity to be uh, given to us, that for God to be generous to us, and then God's invitation uh, that God would want God's generosity made known uh, through us. That is just as God pours out God's love and God's grace and, and God's hope and peace to each one of us, that we then become vehicles of God's grace uh, for the world and how we live that out, uh, partly financially, uh, but also throughout uh, the holistic nature of who we are and how we might live into that uh, throughout this month of October. Uh, this morning, you've noticed throughout the series that there's been an emphasis on the us part of this. Uh, and this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time on those last two letters and really what it means to be an us, what it means to be a we. Uh, you know, one of the things that we face in our culture right now, and we've heard a lot about this, we've preached a lot about this, uh, we experience this every day, is the divided nature uh, of our community. Uh, how we have been so hyper-focused on what it means to, for me, for I, uh, to be successful, to be raised up, that we've lost track of what it means to be a we and to be an us. And so even one thing you hear me say most Sunday mornings when we gather is that uh, you know, the, this journey of discipleship uh, was never intended to be something we do alone. It's always been intended to do something in community with one another. And so we're going to spend a lot of time there this morning and how, how we might collectively uh, be vehicles of God's generosity for uh, not just this church, uh, but for the world in which we live. And so that's where we're going to spend our time, our time today. And we're going to begin by talking about a guy named David Brooks. Um, some of you may know David Brooks. Does anybody know David Brooks? There's like seven at 930 that knew them. Does anybody know David Brooks? New York Times, op-ed. Does anybody read the New York Times? Anymore, there's like two. Of, I, said that, I said that name to someone earlier today, and they were like, "Yeah, I don't read the New York Times. We're good." Like so, um, but op-ed columnist, New York Times, uh, best-selling author. Uh, he's been on a speaking tour recently. I was in Kansas City back in September, and heard heard him speak. He's been promoting a book that he just released earlier this spring um, called "The Second Mountain: of uh, The Quest for a Moral Life." Uh, and if you don't know David Brooks's life, which many of us don't, uh, David Brooks was uh, by family, by heritage, was born into a Jewish family. Uh, and has sort of been seeking and searching for uh, his own spiritual renewal, looking lots of places to find uh, what it would mean to live sort of this, this holy human existence, the, the holistic existence. Uh, he talks about his first mountain, the success he achieved in life, and, and where a lot of that failed him, and some of his own personal failures that led him to a place in the valley, and how he's been sort of uh, seeking this, this uh, almost transcendence uh, throughout the second mountain of his life. And so he speaks about this and tell, we, I mean, told some great stories, and uh, I've been listening to his book on Audible uh, on, in the car when I drive, and it's just been a great, a great gift to me. I'm only about two chapters in, so I don't make any promises for the second half of the book, but the first two chapters have been good. Um, I talked to one of our uh, church members earlier, Alta Witt. She says they're reading this in their, her book club, and she says it even gets better. So that's great. So that's a decent endorsement from someone else. If you're looking for a book to read this fall, um, it's a good read. Um, he also serves, though, which is more interesting to me this morning, uh, as the executive director of the Aspen Institute uh, with a particular focus on a project that they call the Weave Project. Uh, it's uh, the Social Fabric Project. And Weave is something that they've been doing for a while with the Aspen Institute, um, really based in this idea uh, that our society, uh, the wovenness of our society, is being stressed and tested and really being pulled apart, uh, that as we have uh, continued to see symptoms that he would say really are the last 60 years in America, uh, there's been this pulling apart of our communities, of our families, 
uh, of our churches, of, of all the places where we are, we continue just to be pulled apart. And yet, uh, they're finding folks in all these places that are trying to weave those back together. Uh, that are, they're, they're trying to sort of weave our communities to a place where uh, we're finding an us in a, in a culture that really pushes us towards an I and a me. That makes it about uh, where I might succeed, where I might be fulfilled, uh, rather than what it means to really uh, be woven together, to be interdependent with each other. And so they've found people all across the country that have been doing this work, and they've been trying to identify them, to raise them up, to tell their stories. Uh, and again, I, I just have found that very helpful for me as I narrate what we try to do as a church and what we, who we're, the people we're kind of trying to be uh, as a church a community. And he names it this way. He talks about the pain that he's seen. And this is sort of why, uh, why they're doing this project. Of course, he travels a lot, writes a lot, researches a lot. And this is how he describes what he's experiencing uh, in his work. Uh, David writes this. He says, when you cover the sociology beat as I do, uh, you see all kinds of pain. The African-American woman in Greenville who is indignant because young black kids in her neighborhood face injustice just as gross as she did in 1953. The college student in the Midwest who is convinced that she is the only one haunted by compulsive thoughts about her own worthlessness. The Trump-supporting small businessman in Louisiana who silently clenches his fist in rage as guests at a dinner party disparage his whole way of life. These different kinds of pain, he says, share a common thread. Our lack of healthy connection to each other, our inability to see the full dignity of each other, and the resulting culture of fear, distrust, tribalism, shaming, and strife. Uh, David says uh, the root of these problems, the root of this pain that we've just named, of this, uh, this, this pulling apart, he says it's really a symptom of 60 years of what he calls um, social isolationism and social fragmentation. As our societies have moved towards more isolationism and more fragmentation, uh, this pain has, has risen up in a way that really begins to tear at that very fabric uh, of our communities. And we've talked about this here plenty of times before. A few months ago, about a month ago, a month and a half ago, we talked about the epidemic of loneliness and how people are feeling more and more lonely and what it means to feel alone in this culture, particularly our, our young people, the millennials are experiencing this at an incredible rate, uh, much faster than um, even many of us did. Or I'm, I'm kind of right on that edge, so I'm not going to tell you how old I am this morning, but I was right on that edge of that. They're, they're, more and more, Blue Cross Blue Shield did a study and showed that like, they're just experiencing isolation and loneliness and what that feels like and what that does um, for our culture. And so what Brooks starts to talk about is what it looks like to reverse that, what it looks like to invert that, and how we might, as culture, as people invested in these cultures, uh, do something different about it. And this is what he says. He says, we're living with an excess, excesses of 60 years of hyper-individualism. There's a lot of emphasis in our culture on personal freedom, self-interest, self-expression, the idea that life is an individual journey toward personal fulfillment. You do you. But weavers, this is what he calls those, those people who are weaving the fabric of society, of society, share an ethos that puts relationship over self. We are born into relationships, and the measure of our life is in the quality of our relationships. We precedes me. 
uh, whether they, that's weavers, whether the weavers live in red or blue American, they often use the same terms and embody the same values. Deep hospitality, showing up for people, and they keep showing up. They are somewheres, not anywheres, firmly planted in their local community. He talks about what it means to be a people committed to the local, committed to uh, your neighborhood, to your family, to your relationships, and, and what it means to invest there in a way that you begin to see fruit happens. Uh, when we were in Kansas City, uh, he told a story about a woman and her husband. Uh, they lived in the Inglewood, uh, in, the, in, the Chicago, in Chicago, in the Inglewood community, and they got to a place where they were ready to move out. They had, they had established jobs and enough savings and income to, to move out of Inglewood. And the way David tells the story, they had gotten to the place where they had uh, done everything. They had secured jobs and a home somewhere else. They had packed up the cars. They packed up the moving trucks. They were uh, literally on their way out of Inglewood. And they get to a place in the last street in their community uh, when the wife uh, turns and looks into an empty lot and sees two young girls uh, playing in this empty lot with broken bottles. And she said it was a pivotal moment in her own imagination where she looked at her husband and she said to him in that moment as she recalls, uh, we're not moving. She said, we're not moving away from them. We're not moving away from that. We are not going to be just another family that abandoned this place and this people. So they stayed. And they begin to invest in, those, in that community, even though they could have left, even though they had the means to leave, the ways to leave, they chose to stay and see transformation uh, in that community. Uh, now I'll tell you, there are dozens of people in my own life in this community uh, that I can name that have been that for this place, for this church, for Apex, for Holly Springs, this whole region, that have invested here to transform lives this is a story that's told over and over in Scripture, and we're going to go there in a minute uh, this morning to Nehemiah, where we see this story over and over again played out in the pages of Scripture, where you see people who choose to invest in a region, in a body, in a group of people. That's, that's the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture over and over again is God choosing to use individuals, not for the individual's sake, but individuals to build up a body, a community, and then to move that community forward uh, to experience sanctification. That's what we'd call it, the process of becoming holy process of becoming more like Christ. It's why we say all the time, it's why we emphasize the us, where we say that God never designed us to do this alone. From the very beginning, God designed us to be in relationship and to, to move a group of people. He chose Israel, a body of people, to move closer and closer to God. That's the design. That's what the church is all about. And so in Scripture, you see that over and over again. If you're here this summer and heard our Judges sermon series, that was a theme there was a group of people who turned from God and then were moved by an individual who was compelled to invest in them. And that's the story we'll hear again, the story in Nehemiah. So I'm going to invite us to turn uh, to Nehemiah. If you have your Bible with you this morning, it's in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. It's uh, after sort of Judges, Kings, and Chronicles. It's before you get to uh, the Psalms and Job. And so it's sort of that first half of the Old Testament. I'm going to invite you, you can look if you have a physical Bible, open up with me. The words will be on the screen as well. And where we are in this story is Nehemiah exists in a time uh, when the people of Israel, they've moved into the promised land. Uh, in the promised land, uh, soon after they were there, not long after they were there, they were conquered by Babylonians. And so the Babylonians come in, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, uh, conquers Israel, 
uh, destroys the community in many ways, actually burns down the temple, and then casts many of the Israelites, the Jewish people, into exile across what we now know as the Middle East and uh, Northern Egypt. And so they were spread across that entire region. And we're about 150 years removed uh, from when Babylon came in and, and, did, and destroyed Jerusalem and, and exiled God's people. And Nehemiah finds himself, 150 years later, uh, with the Persians. Uh, the Persians have conquered Babylon. They're now in charge of that region. And so he's with a Persian king, and he's serving in a Persian court. And so this is a Jewish person, um, many generations removed from Jerusalem, uh, but knows the stories of his heritage, knows the stories of his family, is now serving with the Persian king as the Persian king's cupbearer. Now, we don't have cupbearers today, so I'm going to tell you what a cupbearer is, in case you don't know. A cupbearer is someone who uh, would drink the glass of wine before the king would drink it uh, to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Um, not a great job, right? Um, and yet, it was a job where he was deeply trusted. He had earned the trust as a servant of the king, where the king trusted him to do this work. He was also a person that was close to the king almost at every meal, uh, where they would see him over and over again. And so he had worked his way up in the kingdom, was trusted by the king, uh, in Persia. And when we pick up the story, this is chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, he's coming to the king brokenhearted because one of his brothers had come back to him from Jerusalem and said, uh, our people are suffering. Our community is broken. and There's nothing we can do. This is what happens. This is chapter 2, uh, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King uh, Artaxerxes, when wine was served him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in the king's presence before. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So Nehemiah comes to King Antaxerxes, and he's, he's brokenhearted, and, and the king can see it. He knows him well enough to know this is not how he normally comes. So normally he must come with a different posture, a different a joy, a different energy, and he recognizes that in him. This is the servant he's known long enough to know his emotions. And, and he says, why are you sad? What breaks your heart today? That's what he replies, verse 3. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I, Nehemiah, prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestor's grave, so that I may rebuild it. So Nehemiah comes to the king and says, this is what's going on. My, my, my Judah, where Jerusalem is, is broken. Judah, where my family comes from, is burned. It is, it is no longer the place where it, that it was. And I feel compelled to leave this place to go home. Would you please let me go? Now I want you to imagine for a minute what's happening. He lives in the king's court. He has a premier job where his only job is to make sure the king's cup is not poisoned. Now again, it's not the best job but it's in the king's court. He's with the king's people. He is, he's been raised up as a, as a trusted servant, and so he is known and loved and trusted. And he says, I want to leave this place to go home because my heart is there. 
And you saw him walking in very afraid because he had no idea what the king would say to him. But this is the cool thing about the story. The king says, yeah, I want you to go home. I want you to go home and be with your people. I want you to go home and help your people. And they continued this conversation for several verses where the king not only sends Nehemiah back to Judah, he says, I'm going to send some of my people with you. And you have my permission along the way. We have all these uh, places where we are in charge of. I want you to take wood with you and take resources with you. And I want you to go, and I'm going to help you rebuild Jerusalem. Help you rebuild Judah. And so he goes. And he gets back, and we can pick up with verse 17. And in verse 17, he's now in Jerusalem, and he's, he's there with his people, with the resources of the king. And this is what he says. He says, I said to them, that's the elders of Jerusalem, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with the gates burned. Come. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. That last phrase in that scripture I love, it's, it's they committed themselves to the common good. Several years ago, when I was doing some doctoral work around adult education and adult formation, there was a book that I read called Common Fire by a guy named Larry Delos. And Larry was talking about this idea that, uh, it, that we have to learn now uh, what it means to be committed to the commons, uh, to the common good of the community. It's, not, it's, it's so uh, anti-cultural, so antithetic to who we are, that there's going to be a formation process that teaches us what it means to invest in the community. Something that should be natural to who we are, so unnatural, we have to learn what that looks like. And so we learn it, and we see people model it, and it becomes part of who we are, that we're sort of undoing this, this hyper-individualism to become an us. Now again, one thing I love about the church is you see this all the time in the church. You see people who live into this, people who say, this matters enough to me that I want to help build a generation after generation. And they do it in small ways and big ways. Uh, one of those folks for us is a woman named Margaret Kelder, some of you know Margaret. Some of you had uh, preschoolers that learned music from Margaret. And so we're going to hear this morning a part of Margaret's story as she has chosen uh, to invest generation after generation in building up this community. Let's watch. I love Margaret's story. I don't know if you caught all of that. 19, she was joined here in 1978. She's been here for over 40 years. And for over 40 years, she has chosen to offer her gift, a love for music, uh, to our kids. And she started with preschool through second grade. Is now, there was eight of them at that time. And is now, she just has preschoolers at just the 930 hour. And you heard it, there's 35 to 40 every week in the 935 hour that she uh, invests in our preschoolers, uh, teaching them the words and the music of our faith so that language might permeate them and they might be vehicles uh, through their song of inviting us to experience God's love through music. What a beautiful gift. For 40 years, she has chosen to invest here locally in this place and this people and generations now of students have moved through here that now are formed in God's love because Margaret 
I chose to use her gifts to weave this community together in a small, simple way that's bearing fruit. And that is a small, simple way. She would tell you that. And yet, there's so many people who do the things like that, who, who cared for generation after generation. Now, some of you may hear that and say, I'm not, that's why I don't volunteer for anything, because then I have to do it for 40 years. That was not the, the intent. But it is a way to say uh, that this is, this is people who journey together from generation to generation uh, to invest and build up a body, a community uh, that can be life transforming. Uh, one way we do that, we've talked about this for the last four weeks, is through our gifts. Uh, we do this with our finances. We, we choose to invest, and this is part of how we live life together. It isn't us. We've used this, um, this ladder the last several weeks uh, to talk through this, and, and our hope with this is really to say and to invite us to come alongside of each other. Uh, that, that's the intent. It, it takes all of us. We're not a church that has, uh, or is built around one or two large gifts or, or three or four families that do this. It takes all of us. We really are a church that uh, the vast majority of our gifts are spread out across um, really hundreds of families. Uh, last year, we had 313 families uh, who made a pledge, made an estimate of giving uh, to invest in this place, about 900,000 people who said, uh, you know, we want to be part of this together. It, it, it takes all of us. And so we want to invite you, we invite each of us to be part of that journey. Uh, we use this tool to, to help us move. We believe that part of what we'd like to do is make a prayerful and intentional move in how we give, just like we do anything else. We're Methodists. We have a method to how we do things, right? And so we want to be prayerful, intentional about how we give. And so we say, wherever you are, uh, we'd invite you to consider how God might be moving you uh, to invest in this place, in this community, so that we might weave it together from generation to generation. Uh, some of you may be new here. You may give occasionally. We invite you to think about what you would like to, to make an initial pledge, to make an initial estimate, so that over the next year you have a planned way that you're giving to the life of the church. Uh, some of you do that already. We'd like to, you to consider what it would look like to give uh, intentionally or proportionally to the life of the church. Uh, maybe you'll look at your income and give 1% or 2% or 4% uh, or 6%, whatever it may be, as you move towards a proportional way of giving that really is intentional and disciplined across the year. Uh, for some, it means moving to tithing for the first time to say that uh, we believe in, in, in giving 10%, a biblical model of giving 10% of our income to this shared investment we have. Uh, some want to move beyond tithing, and some are thinking about what it means to, to leave a legacy. Uh, this is a, a, a choice my wife and I made a few years ago. We redid our will. And we left in it a legacy gift to the church as a way to say we believe in this place that's helped us raise our kids. We want it to help raise generations for generations of kids for generations to come, even beyond our time here. It's a choice that we made to make a legacy plan in our estate planning for that. And so some of you are there. And I would invite you wherever you are, uh, this will be the last Sunday we talk about it publicly in worship, but just a chance to, to take a minute to, to be intentional about how we invest together. Because it's in that mutuality, in that us-ness of us, uh, that we get a chance to do this life together. I'll tell you right now, we have about 91 families who have committed for next year. Uh, usually, that's really normal for this point in time, by week three. Uh, one, it's October. I had a 13-year-old two weeks ago tell me um, she saw the bulletin, saw it with generosity. She looked up and goes, is it October already? So we know, people know, it's October, we talk about money. Um, and so this will be the last week we do that. And so we have about 90 families right now. Usually it doubles in the next week. And so if you've not done that yet, it's very normal. We invite you to consider that. And then by the end of the fall, we're hoping to see over 300 families committed uh, to what we're doing together. And so we just invite you to consider that, uh, doing that this week as we make plans for next year uh, to, to be good stewards of the resources we have so we continue to do the work that we feel God calls us to do. Uh, mostly I want to say thank you. Thank you for the ways that you are part of this story. Uh, thank you for the ways that you're part of a we, 
uh, that you are giving yourself, giving yourself through your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness uh, to make us who we are. Because it does take all of us. And I'm grateful to be part of that, that with you. Let me pray for us this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks. We thank you for the unique ways that you've gifted each one of us, the ways you invite us into this work that we share, the, the kingdom work that you call us to. And, and Lord, this morning, uh, we ask that you would, again, just fill us. That through your generous love and your generous grace, that your spirit would, might fill us up. And that we might have an imagination for what you are calling us to next. And that we, like Margaret shared, might be willing and have the imagination to take that next step, that small step, whatever it may be, to move closer to you, closer to our calling, so that we might contribute to this body, this, this church, this family you've called us to, is that by our very presence in it, we might make one another more holy, and by our very presence in it, we might move closer to you and closer to being like your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.